Reflections on St. Paul's Letter to the Romans by Gil Bailey Produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 4 It's very clear to us now, when we say the word sacrifice, every, we almost always, in ordinary conversation, we almost always mean something like self, self-sacrifice. Somebody made a sacrifice. and so, Never, when we say that word in the contemporary world, do we mean there's a wrathful God about to visit violence on us and we better and we better placate him so that that won't happen. When you say sacrifice in ordinary conversation, no one ever means that. When the f- word was first used, no one ever meant anything but that. And now it means the opposite. No, so the question is, it's like it's like in the Christian tradition the trans the transformation from altar to 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 communion table from from altar to the last supper you see a transition that always we must always see the altar underneath there because that's that tells us the mystery that is taking place it alerts us to the mystery that's taking place well likewise with this idea of sacrifice so the what we need to know is you know, Owen Barfield did this wonderful study. He's a philologist, and he did this wonderful study of words and so on. And just based on his his work as a philologist, he says, if I knew nothing else, I would, I would hazard a guess, just looking at words and how words were used over a period of hundreds of years on either side of it. See, if I had nothing else to go on, I would guess that something very fundamental happened in the first century. Because these words start going in other directions, you see. Something something happened. The words are retained. But something else is is at, at work. See, one thing we have to ask, Paul says, we, we shouldn't be, you're not doing the work, don't try. So the question is, what's at work? I'll be happy to, I'll be happy to lay off if I, if somebody's on the job, right? What's at work? Well, the, the Christian tradition talks about that in various ways, or the biblical tradition, the spirit, the paraclete, and so on. But so we, what we want to know is, we have the word sacrifice, we have saf- sacrificial language, sacrificial discourse, and so on, and then it makes this transition. Can we spot those places where it begins to make its transition? See, that's the important stuff. It's already making it in the prophets. The prophets are already critiquing the sacrificial language and beginning to transform it, but very radically here. And then Paul says, through his blood, God has presented him as a means of expiating sin for all who have faith. Now, the word here for the expiation is the word hilasterion, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word kaporet, which meant the, the mercy seat, which was the cover on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And so... And the word, the, the Hebrew word, means to cover, as in to conceal, to obliterate, but also to perform an expiation. So it's very interesting. The root of this word has both a sacrificial and a concealing quality to it. And so I'm just going to go through, just touch on a couple of things, because it's, the scholarship on this is, 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 is rich in a way that Paul is. Joseph Fitzmaier, who's done a great study of Romans, says, finds that hilasterion is related to the verb that's used throughout the classical and Hellenistic Greek world to talk about appeasing an angry God. 
But he says, no, we can't. We can't use that. We, obviously, that doesn't fit because the way it works here, it is God presented him as a hilasterion for, uh, for our sins. Well, Fitzmaier says the obvious. That would mean God is presenting Christ as a means of appeasing his own anger. And that doesn't work very well. So he says we couldn't, that doesn't quite get it. I must say before going on, what, what Fitzmaier doesn't see is what Hammer and Kelly does see, and that is that the, that the relationship has reversed. That we not, we no longer have, uh, you know, terrified humanity offering a sacrificial, a blood, a blood sacrifice to a God who demands a blood sacrifice. We have a, a God of suffering love offering to murderous humanity, demanding a victim, a victim which will, in the process of their victimization, destroy the whole mechanism, destroy the whole illusion. Why? To break the grip of sin, death, and wrath. To find out why Paul would be using the mercy seat, we have to go back and see how it was used in the old order. In Leviticus 16, which is a scapegoating ritual, the institution of scapegoating ritual, Yahweh says to Moses the following, and I've just taken the bare essentials that goes on and on, but Yahweh says to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother that he may not enter the sanctuary inside the curtain in front of the mercy seat whenever he chooses lest he die. The mercy seat is very dangerous. It's the, it's the, it's the heart and soul of the sacred. And you must be very, you must uh, enter its presence only under the most, uh, careful circumstances. And then he goes on. This is how he must enter the sanctuary. And then there's a long litany I'm skipping. And then it says, having offered the bull as a sacrifice for his own sin and performed the rite of expiation for himself and his family and slaughtered the bull as a sacrifice for sin, Aaron will then fill a censer with live coals from the altar before Yahweh, take two handfuls of finely ground aromatic incense, and bring this inside the curtain. He will then put incense on the fire before Yahweh so that the cloud of incense hides the mercy seat that is on the testimony, so he does not incur death. Notice this. He gets to go. This is on the Day of Atonement, by the way. It only happens once a year. Only the high priest is allowed in. So this is the, absolutely the most restricted area in the world. Once a year, the high priest only. And then he goes inside the curtain, and as soon as he's inside the curtain, he has to fill the room with so much incense that he can't even see the mercy seat. Listen to this. He will then put incense on the fire before Yahweh so that the cloud of incense hides the mercy seat which is on the testimony, so he does not incur death. You see this? Even when it's unveiled, it must be veiled. He will then take some of the bull's blood and sprinkle it with his fingers on the eastern side of the mercy seat. He will sprinkle some of the blood seven times with his fingers in front of the mercy seat. He will then slaughter a goat for sacrifice and so on. So there you have it. Now, just just while we're doing a little ancient thing, Imagine for a second why this precaution. Why this? Pre- this this is what is holding this world together. The awe generated by that shrine is what is giving order to the whole Israelite society. Now, 
and it is where the sacrifices are offered and so on and so forth. Imagine, if you will, somebody who doesn't read Leviticus 16 and just goes in. And he looks around and there's he's inside the curtain and there's no incense and there's no aura and he picks it up and fiddles with it and looks out, look, picks this thing up and looks underneath it and looks at this other thing over there and wonders what this is all about and so on and so forth. And a whole culture is destroyed in the sense that suddenly, to the extent that he's able to walk out and explain to people, well, it's just a little box in there and it's got this in it and that in it and so on. What happens? The sacred aura is gone. And that world is plunged instantly into modernity. And we, who are struggling through modernity 4,000 years later, are not doing a very good job of it. You see what I mean? To live without that power, that that restraining power, that civilizing power that the primitive sacred had is no easy thing, as you can, as you may notice if you look around. And uh, so, it's surrounded by that all. Now we have to see how radical Paul is. Paul says, we have a new mercy seat. We have a new place to go to meet God and to get reconciled. You see, what happened at the, in the atonement ritual once a year was that the people were reconciled to their God, that their sins were not forgiven, forgiven, because in the old order you can't forgive them. You can only move them around someplace. You can only transfer them. So they were moved around and transferred and gotten out and no longer taken into account, accounted to another. And what Paul is saying is that we have a new mercy seat. The mercy seat where God and humanity meet, for Paul, is the cross, which is the reversal and deconstruction of all acts of sacralizing violence that went before. It's not humanity's sacrifice to a God ready to destroy humanity with his violence and vengeance. It is the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. Sacrifice not to a wrathful God, but to a furious mob. The mythological subterfuge whereby human murder was given religious legitimacy was exploded. The raging and wrathful God turns out to have been humanity all along. The veil of the temple is rent from top to bottom. The mercy seat before us, you could tell from that story, was veiled and veiled either behind veils or behind incense or both and then only once a year, and so on. And this, Paul says, and Paul says that God has set forth or presented, it's a very, it's a very public uh, word, presented openly, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, no, nothing, you know, no obfuscation. Right there it is. This mercy seat, which is the crucified Christ. No veils, no incense, no cultic sacralization. The, the crucified 
Christ. Now, the question, of course, is how in the world that could become a source of righteousness, a source of justification. How in the world could that become a source of justification? In the old eon, righteousness and sinful guilt were opposites. The law determined the righteousness and the sinfulness, and the sinful were condemned and the righteous were acquitted. In the new eon, the, the tension is not between righteousness and guilt. All are guilty, Paul says. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans. Everyone. No one is righteous. In the new eon, the tension or the dialectic is between unforgiven and forgiven sinfulness. Now, Paul's idea here is prefigured in Jeremiah 31. I'll read that to you. I've read it before because it's, I think, a really a key passage. But in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is foreseeing this, this new eon, this new form of righteousness. Jeremiah says, Look, the days are coming, Yahweh declares, when I shall make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their ancestors the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, a, co- a covenant which they broke even though I was their master, Yahweh declared. The old covenant is the Mosaic law. And Jeremiah, Yahweh is speaking through Jeremiah saying, "That's not. we're going to dispense with that one and we're going to have a new covenant. And he says, Within them I shall plant my law, writing it on their hearts. And I, it's so, it's wonderful this verb plant, you know, because Jeremiah uses this too. He uses the, Jeremiah in another place talks about, and actually this is very close to Paul's idea of righteousness or justification, that is to, to be planted by the stream. Jeremiah says, When one is planted by the stream, then even when it gets dry, even when things dry up, one's roots... I mean, he, does, he doesn't exactly do a, a, a natural science analysis of this thing, but the, the image is that one's roots are in the water table. And so it, the seasons come and go, the fashions come and go, and all of that, and meanwhile the roots are there. This is very... Usually I talk about this transcendence and we think of something that goes up, you see, but... Jeremiah has this marvelous idea of roots. Well, there's a hint of that here. He says, uh, God will plant his law in our hearts. And that means that it's not like a pacemaker, boom, it's all there, over and done with, but it's something that grows. But the act of planting it there is decisive. Yahweh speaking through Jeremiah then says, Then I shall be their God, and they shall be my people. There will be no further need for anyone like me to teach neighbor or brother saying, learn to know Yahweh. No, they will all know me from the least to the greatest, Yahweh declares, since I shall forgive their guilt and never more call their sin to mind. And I would say that word since speaking as we are of this passage, is the most important word in the Bible. They will be my people. They will know me. Why will they know me? Since 
I shall forgive their guilt and never call their sin to mind. What does that mean? That means that they cannot know me either because of their sinfulness or, the, or their sense of guilt or of the, or of the, or the, or the stupid and fastidious way in which they're trying to justify themselves. They can never know me until we get past that. And this whole problem of righteousness, unrighteousness, sinners, uh, outcast, who's in, who's out, how am I doing, all of that is, is one big barrier to, this, to, to the God who's trying to get to know humanity. And the whole sacrificial apparatus is based on it. And so Yahweh speaks to Jeremiah and says, I will simply plant it in their hearts and never look at their sins anymore, and then finally they will know me. This really, I think, is why Jesus was so exasperated by the Pharisees. He says to the Pharisees and the lawyers, you know, in Luke, he says, not only are you not going in, you're blocking everybody else's path in to the kingdom. I think it fits perfectly with Jeremiah. You see, Jesus says, I'm out here trying to forgive these people. So they'll, so they can touch the living God again, and you're sitting there with your, you know, your, your arms akimbo, telling them what they have to do in order for this to happen. So you're blocking, you're not going in yourselves to the kingdom, and you're blocking the way of the kingdom. And I think that's of a piece perfectly with Jeremiah, and in large measure with what Paul is saying. In the new eon, the act of judgment and the act of acquittal are the same act, namely the cross. It is an act of judgment in that it forces those on whom it, it has its full impact the realization that they too are crucified. It is an act of acquittal in that the contrition those who stand under the judgment of the cross experience has to some degree at least the effect it had on Peter when he heard the cock crow and on Paul on the road to Damascus. And in both cases, it swept everything away. And they, and they came to know the living God. I want to just quote this little poem by Rilke, which may seem out of place here, but it came to mind thinking about the experience, uh, this experience which is both the profoundest kind of contrition and the experience of grace and justification. And I think it's of a piece with Paul. It's a little, it's on the edges of Paul's thought, you might say, but there's something here. If you think of Paul's experience and Peter's experience. There's something in this little poem by Rilke. The leaves are falling, falling as from far, as though above were withering farthest gardens. They fall with a denying attitude, and night by night down into solitude the heavy earth falls far from every star. We are all falling. This hand's falling too. All have this falling sickness, 
none withstand. And yet, there's one whose gently holding hands this universal falling can't fall through. Well, I should say, I think that captures the dynamic, if not exactly the moral tone, of the experience which is crucifixion resurrection, which is contrition justification, and which is the key to the breakthrough that Paul is trying to describe and explicate. I want to explore Paul's anthropology just one little bit more and then come to his the spirituality and mysticism of Paul. Right after the verse we've been talking about, about the Hilasterion, Paul says, it was to be a manifestation of God's uprightness or justification or righteousness for the pardon of past sins committed in the time of his forbearance, a manifestation of his, God's, uprightness also at the present time to show that he, God, is upright or righteous and that he justifies the one who puts faith in Jesus. And again, this is quite condensed, but I want to explore that a little bit, and I want to explore two things about it, and that is to say the time of his, something about the time of his forbearance, and also about his, the fact that the cross represents a manifestation of God's uprightness, as though we somehow had to have that manifested to us. First of all, this idea of for the pardon of sins committed in the time of his forbearance. The time of his forbearance is in the old eon. And what does that mean? Well, the Greek word for forbearance here is the word parisis, which is to pass over. So, speaking anthropomorphically now, the most God could do in the old eon was to allow his wrath to pass over those on whom it might fall and have it fall instead on the heads of those who were more culpable, animal victims, people more expendable, more idolatrous, and so on and so forth. In other words, the wrath had to be moved around within the system and the best you could do was to focus it on those on whom it would fall with the least moral disturbance. That was the old eon. The time of his forbearance, meaning the time in which all you could do is have the wrath somehow pass over some and fall on others. Under the old eon, sins were either taken into account and punished or transferred to another account. Ancient Israel's apotropaic rites, that, that means rites that are uh, intended to appease the, the wrath of the God. Ancient Israel's apotropaic rites were designed to focus Yahweh's wrath on, ex, on an expendable victim, human or animal, and therefore to cause Yahweh to forbear or pass over the sins of the many. 
and accept the punishment of the one or the few as propitiation for the sins of all. For example, in the Phineas story that I referred to, I think, last week, the end of the story is this. Yahweh says to Moses, Phineas has turned my wrath away from the sons of Israel because he was the only one among them to have the same zeal as I have. For this I did not make an end in my zeal of the sons of Israel. And Phineas did this by killing the Israelite and his concubine. In other words, the wrath was turned away from the many and focused on those who were actually caught in the act of committing this this transgression. That's the old system. It's the system of forbearance, but really the system of Passover. Now, this this sounds a little harsh, and I'm, I'm not trying to deconstruct the, the, the Jewish tradition by any means, but we have to see how radical what Paul is saying is. The age of forbearance is the age of sacrifice, is the age of Passover in its, in its, in its metaphorical sense of putting the blood of a victim, using the blood of a victim as an apotropaic gesture which causes the wrath of God to go someplace else. But it doesn't, it doesn't, it's still operating within the system of wrath. You see what I mean? That's the point of it. It deflects the wrath towards others. With the crucifixion, a new form of forbearance came into the world, and with it, a new form of justification. And, and this is the point I want to make, the forms of forbearance and justification that were valid and effective in the old eon were exposed and demolished. Now that God's gracious and unmerited act of forgiveness has become the method of justification, the age of forbearance is over. Wrath is no longer under the control of the sacrificial system. Law and religion have lost their apotropaic power. And so now we're in a world, Gerard says, where we have to choose between the kingdom and the apocalypse. Because the law's power, the power of, of law, and Paul uses both law in the sense of Torah and in the sense of, of nomos, the Greek law, Law is losing its power, which is always the power of forbearance. It's always the power of moving wrath around within the system. It's losing that power. So now it's up to us to behave in ways that do not generate wrath because the wrath is human wrath. The wrath is human wrath. And we have to... And then how do we behave in ways that do not generate... that does not generate human wrath or that, or that dissolves it when it is generated? See the Sermon on the Mount. The next thing in that same verse is, Paul says, this was, this was to be a manifestation of God's uprightness for the pardon of past sins committed during the time of forbearance, a manifestation of His uprightness also at the, at the present time to show that He is upright and justifies those who put faith in Christ. There's an ambiguity here which is providential, I think, which is, is this uprightness the uprightness that comes from God or is it the uprightness of God? What's being established here? And I would say it's both, but we shouldn't lose touch of, with the ambiguity. 
Skilbex, for example, says, commenting on this passage, he says, quote, The uprightness of God made manifest in Christ Jesus is the very uprightness of God himself. And I would say, to try to understand that anthropologically, we might say that the, that it is, that the cross is the vindication of the biblical God. It's the culminating moment in the Bible's gradual freeing of itself from the spell of, the prim- of primitive religion. It's God clearing his name, if you will, saying, I'm sorry, folks. You pinned it on me, but it wasn't mine. So then next when Paul says, is there any room for boasting? (laughs) His answer is no. It is ruled out on the principle of faith. And I wanted to just, we've done very little with so much of this material, but I just want to work towards a conclusion thinking about Paul's idea of dependence on God and the fact that there's nothing we can boast of and that something else is at work in us and among us. And I could quote passages in Romans, but I was put in mind of this passage in Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is not Paul, but it's a, it's a Pauline letter, and I think it captures the essence of Paul, if it's not quite as harsh as Paul on the question of works. Nevertheless, I think it's pretty powerful, and I just want to read it. It goes like this. It is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, not by anything of your own, but by a gift from God, not by anything that you have done, so that nobody can claim the credit. We are God's work of art. Now, you know, we have our, we have a nice little hymn we sing on Sundays about this, being God's work of art. And I like it, it's a very nice thing, but <clears throat> we should realize there's something very radical being said there. It's not, it's not this nice little thing about, oh, isn't it nice and lovely and we're God's work of art. The emphasis is we're God's work, not our work. Not our work. We're God's work of art. Created in Christ Jesus for the good works which God has prepared in advance that we might perform them in our turn. It's the most incredible resolution. I mean, when when we shouldn't, not only boast, we shouldn't, get our heads full of crazy ideas, but I have this idea that if I could if I, if I could just grab this text and run back to the 15th century, we could have prevented the Reformation and, and, uh, and, and the Counter-Reformation and the Enlightenment that came to solve the problems of religious turmoil that that created and the catastrophe that the Enlightenment has let loose on the world and all of that. If only we could see that he's saying not that there are no good works in the world. You see, there are good works in the world, but the question is, who's doing them? I mean, if I wake up tomorrow morning and I'm smitten by this need to to emulate the works of Mother Teresa, that'd be a great thing. 
But if I decide, if I, if secretly the reason I want to do it is because I want to be, I want to be, achieve my righteousness, then even if I do it and do as well as she's doing it, it won't have done me any good, because it will won't really be God doing the work in the world. The question is, not that we do or don't work, but who's doing it? Is it something I'm doing, or is it something that? True faith is happening through me. And I love the way the author of Ephesians says, we are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus for the good works, and get this, which God has prepared in advance that we might perform them in our turn. You know, take a number, go do it. It's very, <laughs> Something else is at work in the world. It's not us. That's... And that, see, for Paul, it was unbelievable sense of liberation. Nigren says of Paul, we haven't really dealt with Paul's idea of faith, and we will nibble around at that in the weeks to come. Nigren says, faith always has the action of God as its correlative. Faith is what it is because of its dependence on God. When Paul speaks of faith, he never means, so to say, a mere psychological operation. For faith is always determined by its object, namely faith in Christ, or faith in God through Christ, or as I sometimes think, faith in the faith of Christ. Not faith like, oh, I have plenty of faith. Don't worry, I have faith. Faith in what? You know, faith in well, faith in something. It'll it'll work out, kind of that kind of thing. No, that's not what Paul is. For Paul, it's faith in Christ and in the God in whom Christ had faith. He uses the Abraham Midrash to talk about faith. And the essence of faith for Abraham was that he had nothing else to go on. He hoped against hope against hope. To hope against hope, meaning there was nothing to hope on. God said, well, you're going to be the father of of many nations and Abraham who was 100 years old and Sarah who was long past childbearing age he looked around and he said well if you say so but there was nothing else to go on and that's the and that's the you know that's the burden of Paul's message about Abraham we are children of Abraham because of faith so what does hoping against hope mean I think it means that faith is not destroyed by the destruction of every tangible or rational basis for it. And Nigren has a beautiful passage on that. He says, One might naturally think that faith would weaken when confronted by mounting difficulties, that faith would yield before doubts when the difficulties became so great that the promise seems impossible of fulfillment. Conversely, one might expect that if the prospect brightens and fulfillment seems at least possible, faith again grows stronger. But Paul affirms the opposite. When our own possibilities fail, faith increases. For it does not rest on ourselves or on our adequacy, but on God and his promise. It was just because Abraham did not trust in his own powers that he could face, that he could face the impossibilities in his situation without losing hope. So this idea that faith increases the less there is to go on. Let me conclude with something that, that captures the, some of the spirituality of Paul. 
he says, now that we are justified through faith, we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access in faith to his grace, in which we now stand. And I think stand here, we have to, I feel the power of this word stand goes back to this uprightness. Now we stand in grace. We have access to grace and we stand in grace and are therefore capable of being gracious. And we stand and boast of our hope for the glory of God, boast not not of anything of our own, so that peace with God that makes it possible for us to stand and boast of our hope for the glory of God. That's really at the heart, I think, of Paul's spirituality. And it put me in mind of a Robert Frost poem. And this will be a this is a real carbon dating test because anybody who was around last time I read this Robert Frost poem has been around for a long time. Because I, I, I used to read it about every six months, that seems like, but I haven't in a long time. And it's called The Silken Tent. It goes like this. She is, as in a field, a silken tent at midday when a sunny summer breeze has dried the dew and all the ropes relent so that in guise it gently sways at ease. And its supporting central cedar pole that is its pinnacle to heavenward and signifies the sureness of the soul, seems to owe naught to any single cord, but strictly held by none is loosely bound by countless silken ties of love and thought to everything on earth the compass round. And only by one's going slightly taut in the capriciousness of summer air is of the slightest bondage made aware. And there's so many things about this poem that I that I like. First of all, it is this central cedar pole that is its pinnacle to heavenward that makes it possible to stand and also makes it possible not to be pulled down by the various ties it has, the ties of love and thought, to everything on earth the compass round. It makes possible that universality. It makes possible that ability to touch and be touched without being falling into some kind of hubbub. And I guess the two things I would say about it, by the way, you know the word confidence means with faith. It doesn't mean even the idea of self-confidence is just a pretty empty idea. Originally, when we saw somebody who seemed to have confidence, we recognized etymologically that what we were admiring in them had to do with faith. Isn't that something? We've, gone, we've come a long way from that. So, I, I, two things I want to bring out about this. First of all, it's obvious this grace. This is not. This is a poem about grace. 
And it's also a poem about a central cedar pole that is the pinnacle to heavenward. And why in God's name would that central cedar pole be the cross? This is what is so puzzling about the mystery of the Christian revelation and what and Paul's explication of it. And there's no real answer to it. Every attempt to answer is just a way of nibbling around the edges of the mystery. But I'll tell you this. This morning at 4 o'clock, I had the following thought. I thought, ah, remember that thing that Boober says? <laughs> and I came over here and looked this up in Boober's book on Moses. And he says, always and everywhere in the history of religion, the fact that God is identified with success is the greatest obstacle to a steadfast religious life. Moses, Boover goes on to say, Moses has to engage in a never-interrupted, never-despairing struggle against the stiff-neckedness of Israel. That is, against this permanent passion for success. And I thought to myself, a God who is only with me in triumph is a God in whose name I will sooner or later be slaughtering my enemy. It is a God who can only triumph over death by dispensing death. It is a God still caught in what Paul calls the old eon, the realm of sin, wrath, and death. But if the supporting central cedar pole that is one's pinnacle to heavenward is the cross, then one doesn't operate under that under the same dispensation. It is the God of the crucified one, the one who was obedient even unto death. And faith in such a God or faith in the crucified one who reveals such a God frees me from the, from the grip of sin, death, and wrath. The last thing I've said about Frost's poem is this hint at the end where he says, only by one's going slightly taut, one of the guy wires, going slightly taut, in the capriciousness of summer air, is of the slightest bondage made aware. And it's not exactly apropos of the metaphor of the poem, but it made me think of Jesus saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The obedience that give, makes possible this confidence, confidence, this grace, is a light burden. Anyway, finally, finally, I, I want to end on Paul and not on my ruminations about him or on Frost or anything else. So I'm going to read to you from Galatians, and this is the last thing. Paul says this in Galatians. As long as we were still under age, we were enslaved to the elemental principles of this world. But when the completion of the time came, God sent his Son, born of woman, born a subject to the law, to redeem the subjects of the law so that we could receive adoption as sons. 
As you are sons, God has sent into your hearts the spirit of his son, saying, Abba, Father. Isn't that amazing? We can't even take credit for saying that. As you are sons, God has sent into your hearts the spirit of his son, saying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son, an heir. And if a son, then an heir by God's own act. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were kept in slavery to things which were not really God's at all. Whereas now you have come to recognize God, or rather, be recognized by God. That's pretty amazing. Paul's not like a modern. We moderns, something happens to us, and we tend to think of it as our personal experience. Increasingly, we have a tendency to place it in a biographical frame of reference and to see what it means to my life and how it enhances my myth or something like that. That's completely foreign to Paul, of course. Uh, Paul has had a profound experience, but he does not regard it as a personal experience. For Paul, it, it was an encounter, and continues to be, an encounter with reality. And he literally spent the rest of his life trying to live in fidelity to that encounter and to give an articulate account of what it meant not for him but for the human race. And he was trying to describe something that was outside of the frame of reference. That's exactly his struggle. Because the misrecognition of what Paul recognized was key to the whole cultural operation. So Paul had discovered something that you can't discover and still inhabit the world that must misrecognize that thing in order to keep going. If you think of physicists, for example, who try to describe the fifth dimension or something of that nature, or they try to describe to you fractals or chaos theory or whatever it is, they're thrown back on groping for metaphors. I remember some of those books that came out years ago about trying to explain Einstein's <coughs> theories, you know, and, and one had to grope with these strange metaphors and to go out and, and to follow one metaphor until it just ran out of gas completely, you know, and then change and go to another one and back and forth. And, and I think this is a parallel in a way. I think in a way this parallels what Paul is, is doing. And so I, I want us to have a little sympathy for this, this problem he faces. Another aspect of it, of course, is that words and the taste or foretaste of the reality to which they allude don't often happen simultaneously. When they do, it's, a, it's grace. When they happen simultaneously, when the words come and the, and the taste or foretaste of the truth to which they allude come at the same time, then one has the prophetic voice. And it happens t probably to each of us two or three times in our lifetime. It may, do, may not do anybody any good because unless other people who are in, within earshot of that prophetic voice, it, unless for them that same convergence is happening, that's all gibberish. <laughs> so, 
but in any event, what I'm saying is that Paul has had this experience and is and is much more frequently in touch with it, it, its its uh, felt truth than than we are. But nevertheless, he like all the rest of us, he moves outside that felt truth and tries to articulate it, and then suddenly he feels the truth of it again. You can almost feel it in the writing sometimes. You can feel where Paul is trying to articulate it and he's trying to structure it and make sure it gets clarified and then suddenly he touches a nerve. And then he'll say something that's absolutely inexplicable but you know it's true. You don't have to, it doesn't have to have this sort of logical coherence. You can feel the truth of it in his words even though, even though when you try to you know, parse the sentence out, you just can't do it. It doesn't, it doesn't quite fit. And, the, of course, the other thing is that Paul wants people to look at the world through a particular lens, namely the cross. And a few minutes ago it occurred to me that this is, there is quite a parallel here with uh, Galileo. This, the parallel is ridiculous in a way, but you know, Galileo essentially said to the bishops, well, okay, just look through this telescope, will you please? <laughs> Just, and they said, no thanks. They said, no thanks. Parenthetically, we, all of us moderns, look back on things like Galileo and the bishops, and all, we all assume that we would have been on Galileo's side. Even, though, even those of us moderns who believe ardently in the power of crystals somehow feel that they would have been they would have been on Galileo's side in his argument but in any event the point is that Galileo said well look just look through this lens and then we'll have something to talk about and I think Paul is saying that too he's saying and people were had the same reaction to the cross you've got to be kidding you've got to be kidding this man was arrested and duly executed for being a, a, a criminal and a, and, and, a, and a renegade and a, and a blasphemer under Jewish law? You've got to be kidding. As Paul struggles for a way to express the truth that he has discovered, he uses, he appeals to the authority that's there, that is there to appeal to, and the authority is, first and foremost, the Jewish scriptures. So, as I said last week, he performs a midrash, the rabbinical tradition has always tended to to uh, ruminate over these central texts and produce these midrashes, which are, which are commentaries that extend, if you will, the implications or draw out the implications of a certain text. So he did a little midrash on Abraham saying, Abraham, it was Abraham's faith, not Abraham's Jewishness because the faith came before the Jewishness, before circumcision, and, of course, it was before the Mosaic Law. It was Abraham's faith that was his key to righteousness or uprightness and so on. So he does a midrash on that. Right after that, he does a midrash on Adam. And I want to touch on that briefly before getting into chapters uh, 7 and 8, which are in many ways the, the, the centerpiece of Romans. So in his Adam Midrash, Paul says this, Therefore, as sin entered the world through one man, and through sin death, so death spread to all human beings 
with the result that all have sinned. So this is this is the origin of original sin in the Western tradition. This is the origin of the thinking of original sin. Original sin is is a strictly Christian idea, and it was born or cloned from this passage in Romans, by and large. And I think before we go on, I'd like to just muse a little bit about about it and about how it developed. The doctrine of original sin was first fully developed by Augustine, and it was developed in a controversy with Pelagius. And Pelagius had said that what made the sin of Adam contagious was that we human beings had copied Adam's example. And Pelagius, having seen that, decided that what we should do is not do that anymore. And to make a very complicated story, more complicated than we even know because there's not, we don't have all the original argumentation, but to make a very complicated story uh, simple, Pelagius said, well, look, let's just stop doing it because we've been copying or mimicking Adam and if we could just stop doing it, that would be fine. And so Pelagius, Pelagius assumed that with the good intentions and, and ardent efforts and so on and so forth, we could pull ourselves out of the soup. And Augustine, I don't know enough about Pelagius's life, and I don't know if anybody does, to know what his own experience was, but when, when we do have Augustine's confessions, we know that Augustine knew what he was talking about. And we know that Augustine knew from personal experience that it's not very easy to do that. As a matter of fact, it's impossible. To stop mimicking is impossible. And so Augustine, in a sense, drove the nail out of sight. Pelagius had said, no, we can, we can work our way out of this. And Augustine said, no, it is so permanent, it is so indelible. It's really like genetics. It's an inherited sin. It's inherited. That's how permanent and indelible it is. It's propagated, not imitated. So there you have the argument. What I would say about it is that Pelagius was right to, to say that it had to do with imitation, although to say we imitate Adam is a little... that's stretches the thing a little bit. But Augustine was right to say how unbelievably difficult it is to do something else. So there's a controversy bred from Paul's reflections on the universality of sin. And so now we have this idea of original sin, which I think is absolutely essential to understanding the significance of the Christian revelation. Uh, if we can get out of this mess we're in any other way than by the cross, then the Christian claims evaporate. That's very amazing, you see. But that's, I think, the truth of it. So Paul says, sin entered the world and through sin death. So I want to just explore that for a, for a minute. There's a passage in the book of wisdom which was written about 200 years before christ which says quote through the devil's envy death entered the world 
this text, 200 years before Christ, is the first text in the Bible to make an explicit connection between the serpent and the devil. It's a very late connection. More importantly, it makes a connection between envy and death. It was the devil's envy. This, is, this text is obviously speaking about the Garden of Eden. Was the devil's envy insinuated, picked up by Eve and then Adam, that brought death into the world? Well, we know from the Genesis story, death is the punishment for, for the, the sin of the fall. Uh, but what, in what, how does in what is death in the biblical sense really in Paul's sense here? Clearly, Paul's not talking about physical death. Physical death, to a certain extent, he is talking about physical death. Because the promise of eternal life is for him a very real promise. So in a sense he is. But fundamentally, in a religious sense, in a spiritually significant sense, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about something else. He's, and so what is the death that occurs as a result of the fall or a result of sin? I think it is, and I say I think that many, many commentators, Joseph Fitzmaier, who writes a commentary on, on uh, Romans, regards it this way, and Skillebex regards it this way. Death, for Paul, is what we would call alienation. Spiritual death is alienation, first from God, and then from one another. And the irony is that we're alienated from God by turning to one another. By ter- and, and, and then we're alienated from one another by, have, by the fact that we, are, we have turned to one another without God. That God is not in the picture. That the, that the human uh, social order becomes an alienated uh, phenomenon without God in the picture. Simone Weil once said in one of her writings, we don't know how to be with each other because we don't know how to be alone. But you could probably better say we don't know how to be with each other because we don't know how to pray. Because I don't think it was just being alone that she had in mind. So what I'm trying to say is, when Paul says, sin entered the world through one man and through sin death, what he's talking about is something that is is spiritually and religiously significant death. Namely, a death in which we lose touch with the source of our life, which is, in the first instance, the unconditional love of God, the ground of our being, and in the second sense, the conditional source of our life. All those conditional sources, which is those human connections of love that sustain us and without which, by the way, we probably would find God's love literally unbelievable. So that's why we need each other. So, okay, sin entered the world through one man and through sin, death. Here's what the first letter of John says on a similar matter. We are well aware that we have passed over from death to life. Clearly, he's not talking about physical death. We have passed over from death to life because we love our brothers. Whoever does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you are well aware that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. This is, if you stop to 
break this down, this is quite remarkable. We have passed to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love remains in death. So the two realms, you could say, in First John that would correspond to the realms of the old and new eon for Paul would be the realm of death and the realm of love. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and a murderer has no eternal life in him. So the murderer is the one who suffers death in the spiritually significant sense. The death that the Bible is concerned about is the death that the murderer suffers himself by being a murderer. And, as the author of 1 John says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, even though he may not actually physically murder. So the punishment for the sin, sin comes into the world with Adam, which is the turning away from God. And the punishment for sin is death. Now, you, as I've said before, the first death in the Bible is the death of Cain, Cain's murder of Abel. But if the first John is correct, then the, 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 really the first death is the spiritual death of Cain, not the physical death of Abel. It, it's both, of course, because they occur at exactly the same moment. But in the religiously significant sense, it's Cain who experiences the punishment for sin. And the punishment consists of hiding from God and running from everybody else. And so that's, well, that's what death is. Now, I've, I'm, I, this is a long s- set of syllogistic little things. They're not even syllogistic. No. But what is death? The death that comes into the world at the fall is the death if what if the, my last little exercise holds up, is, that the, is the death that Cain experiences when he hides from God and runs from everybody else. And that's what finally happened when, the, when the, the link with God is broken in favor of some mimetic intrigue at the social level. As I think I said last week, one of Paul's great powerful insights is that sin has taken advantage of the law. Or he says it in an even more emphatic way in 1 Corinthians where he says sin gets its power from the law. Sin gets its power from the law. And we could even take that and go back to the book of Genesis and see something there too because we could see that Cain's sin, ritual sacrifice is the origin of the law. The law comes as in, in conjunction with ritual sacrifice. Do we have time for this? The, the, the ancient sacred structure for maintaining order, in the two fundamental uh, structures were sacrifice, the ritual, the cult of sacri- cultic sacrifice, and the prohibitions, the laws that kept some kind of social order. One kept social order, and the other gave a, a, provided an arena in which the social order could could break down and and uh, culminate in bloodletting in a sufficiently uh, sufficiently controlled environment, so there was less chance that it would break out and become a social event. So the two ways of maintaining order were to indulge in the bloodletting in a in a sort of uh, 
in a kind of uh, homeopathic way, safe little way, and to, to structure things legally and, and uh, in terms of uh, the rigors of the law uh, to prevent that from happening outside of the, of the cultic arena. Okay, the, the point I want to make about the Cain story, which is written back into the story very late in the biblical development, the, the Genesis story is, is uh, middle to late in the development of biblical literature, uh, but nevertheless, in Cain's story, Cain's sin, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, sin gets its power from the law. Cain's sin got its power from the sacrificial system. That is to say, his the, the system that was designed to prevent fratricide provoked it. The reason I mention that is because if Paul is right about sin getting its power from the law, it's also true that it gets its power from the sacrificial system. If if the mimetic passions escalate to a point where the cultural structures designed to contain them are overwhelmed and become just fuel for the fire. And this, what the word I want to use for this today, I've used it many times before, but I want to return to this word several times today, and that's the word scandal. It's used in the Gospels in a very powerful way, as Gerard has pointed out in his work, and like so many of the terms that Paul uses, it's, it resists being neatly packaged into one little idea. But I would say, when the world is in scandal, or when a, when a culture, or a person, or a social uh, group is in scandal, then you, you're at a place where the structures that theretofore may have provided order, and sustained, and kept things from getting out of hand, actually become the provocation for them. So this is what Paul is saying about the law, and I think we can read it right back into Genesis. The sacrificial act actually provoked the murder rather than warding it off. And Paul is saying the same thing about the law. The law actually made me sin. When he says me, in that when he, when he begins to talk about that, he does start talking in the first person. When he says me, he's talking about human beings, but I think not human beings in a general way, but human beings who have become scandalized. Because once we've, once we've become scandalized, then the law incites sin, and that's what he's talking about. And I think we already have a hint of that in the Genesis story with sacrifice. In the Greek world, the word used for the sacrificial victim was pharmakos or pharmakoi. The, the sacrificial victims were uh, the ritual sacrifices, and sometimes they were social, sometimes they were religious rituals. But the ritual sacrifice always uh, ended the plague, quote-unquote plague, returned everything to order and so on. Well, the term pharmakoi means, from which we get pharmacy, which means a, both, a cure, both a, a cure, a medicine, and a poison. Today we would use the word drug. The drug really, in the way we use it, the, the two different ways we use drug today would be maybe parallel to its double meaning in Greek. So it can restore health or it can poison us. And what, what's the difference between the two? Well, the difference between the two sometimes has to do with how carefully choreograph the ritual environment is in which the sacrifice takes place. The Old Testament is full of these stories 
where little ritual uh, indiscretions lead to social catastrophe. So part of it is how well it's controlled and how how carefully it's done. And the other part is how scandalized is is the social unit that the ritual is trying to uh, to uh, restore order to. Paul has simply seen that there is complicity between the the law and sin, but he he, he understands that there is not a strict moral or religious difference between the chaos that leads to that that the law tries to to uh, arrest and the law's system for arresting it. I concocted a little metaphor to try to get at this, and. So it would be, it's a little parable. And the parable is, the parable is that there's a disease that has potentially fatal results. And everyone in the culture carries this disease. And if something is not done, it will eventually break out in everyone and be fatal to the individuals and the culture as well. And a cure is found, which is a potion is made, which keeps the worst symptoms of the disease from occurring. But it turns out that the potion is made from the heart muscle of someone who has died from the disease. So the disease is always having to be allowed to run its full course in someone so that others can ward off its fatal symptoms. And I think that's precisely the sacrificial system. 